0: Welcome to episode 47, The Truth About Roe v. Wade, part 2, What They Don't Tell You. Before we get started, I want to ask you to do me a favor and share the show. If you're on Facebook or Twitter and the topics such as climate change, socialism, minimum wage, or tariffs come up, please share the topic-specific TruthQuest episode with your debate partner. If you are listening to this on the Apple Podcast app, please take a moment and scroll down on the podcast page and give it a 5-star rating. Another way you can help grow the show is to throw a small donation my way at the TruthQuest podcast patronage page. See this episode's show notes page at truthquest.podbean.com. The easiest way to stay up to date on the podcast is to subscribe to it on iTunes or Google Play Music. It's also available on Stitcher, Spotify, and Podbean. The TruthQuest podcast YouTube channel contains playlists with various categories covered on these podcasts, including abortion, the Constitution, public policy, economics, Christian apologetics, politics, socialism, healthcare, and miscellaneous for episodes like the Fortnite, vaping, and the NFL National Anthem protests. Finally, please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Podcast. In the last episode I introduced or reintroduced you to the Roe v. Wade opinion and reviewed the majority's unconstitutional line of reasoning for rendering their opinion. The so-called right to privacy, the Ninth Amendment, and the Fourteenth Amendment. And I exposed some of the sick and twisted justifications for killing innocent babies in the womb. In this episode, we are going to walk through the rest of the opinion and expose you to some of the things that you will likely surprise you as they did me. So I ended the last episode with a little taste of what we were going to cover today that being the court's explicit statement that the right to an abortion is not absolute. Remember this quote? The appellant argues that the woman's right is absolute and that she is entitled to terminate her pregnancy at whenever time, for whatever way and whatever reason she alone chooses. With this, we do not agree. Well, Blackman continued, Appellant's arguments that Texas either has no valid interest at all in regulating the abortion decision or no interest strong enough to support any limitation upon the woman's sole determination, are unpersuasive. So what the hell's going on here? I'm reading directly from the Roe v. Wade opinion. I'm not making any of this up, I swear. And the opinion clearly acknowledges that the state has an interest in regulating the abortion decision, as Harry calls it. How come no one ever quotes this sentence from the opinion? It's right there in black and white. Why does someone like me have to uncover this shit 50 years later? Back to the opinion. The court's decision recognizing a right of privacy also acknowledged that some state regulation in areas protected by that right is appropriate. As noted above, a state may properly assert important interests in the safeguarding health, in maintaining medical standards, and in protecting potential life. Did you catch that? The Roe v. Wade opinion states that a state may assert interest in protecting quote unquote potential life. That's their term for the baby in the womb. Again, this is unbelievable. Why isn't this common knowledge? Harry continues, At some point in pregnancy, their respective interests become sufficiently compelling to sustain regulation of the factors that govern the abortion decision. The privacy right involved, therefore, cannot be said to be absolute. In fact it is not clear to us that the claim that one has unlimited right to do with one's body as one pleases bears a close relationship to the right of privacy previously articulated in the court's decisions again this is roe v wade that the left has relied on for 50 years as their god-given right to abort the next generation at will yet it in no way grants such rights it essentially states that at some point the baby becomes worthy of protection Harry ends this mind-blowing portion of the opinion with this, quote, We therefore conclude that the right of personal privacy includes the abortion decision, but that this right is not unqualified and must be considered against important state interests in regulation, end quote. Here's more. Most of these courts have agreed that the right of privacy, however based, is broad enough to cover the abortion decision, that the right, nonetheless, is not absolute and is subject to some limitations, and that at some point, the state interests as to protect of health, medical standards, and prenatal life become dominant. We agree with this approach. Once again, there it is, black and white, Roe v. Wade opinion endorses the regulation of abortion. It admits the right to privacy has limitations. It admits it's not absolute. I've never heard pro-lifers make this point. Why don't they quote this part of the opinion every time a pro-abortionist cites Roe v. Wade? It should be automatic. Roe v. Wade gives me the right to abort my baby due to my right to privacy. Response? Roe v. Wade says that right is not absolute. The one requirement the court seems to require in order to permit some regulation is compelling state interest. However, the Supreme Court did not agree fully with the argument that protecting prenatal life from conception was a compelling state interest. They did not agree that the baby in the womb was a person in the sense that the 14th Amendment would apply to it. So the entire next page of the decision is a quest not for the truth, but to find the definition of personhood in the Constitution in order to refute Texas' argument that the baby in the womb is a person and worthy of protection. Well, guess what, you bunch of conniving, baby-killing activist judges? The Constitution doesn't mention things like babies, children, fetuses, embryos, pregnancy, or abortion, nor does it mention things like cars, light bulbs, gasoline, highways, cable and radio networks, cell phones, timber, travel, or privacy. How did the Founding Fathers deal with this in the Constitution? As mentioned previously, it's called the Tenth Amendment, which reads, The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively, or to the people. If you have not listened to episode 3, I beg you to do it, as it provides the necessary background to the argument I am making here about limited government enshrined in the Constitution. I gotta tell you folks, it should not be this easy for someone like me to rip apart a Supreme Court opinion unless it is as god-awful as I was led to believe. This just reinforces my disdain for activist judges, especially on the Supreme Court, as I discussed in episode 16. But wait, it gets worse. So now the justices go on a sincere quest, combing through the Constitution, looking for the original intent of the writers and ratifiers. Below are some of the justifications that Blackman and his ilk come up with to make sure that their opinion is free of emotion and of predilection, as he mentioned earlier in the opinion. You know because they don't have a dog in the fight they have no preference in how this opinion goes they're the supreme court an impartial panel of constitutional scholars whose only job is to look at the document and apply it to the case presented to in front of them you know defend and protect quote the constitution does not define person in so many words section one of the 14th amendment contains three references to person The first in defining citizens speaks of persons born or naturalized in the United States. The word also appears both in the Due Process Clause and in the Equal Protection Clause. Person is used in other places in the Constitution in the listing of qualifications for representatives and senators, in the apportionment clause, in the migration and importation provision, in the emolument clause, in the elector's provision, in the provision outlining classifications for the office of presidency, in the extradition provisions, and the superseded fugitive slave clause number three, and in the fifth, twelfth, and twenty-second amendments, as well as the fourteenth amendment. But here's the money quote. But in nearly all these instances, the use of the word is such that it has application postnatally. None indicates with any assurance that it has any possible prenatal application. Then in footnote number 53, Harry says this, We are not aware that in the taking of any census under this clause a fetus has ever been counted. I'm sorry, but that's just a disgusting, cynical, demeaning slap in the face of anyone who thinks life is worth protecting. Honestly, it's evil. Was he trying to be funny? Now you know why I refuse to veil my disdain for black men throughout these two episodes. Despite his sick sarcasm, this is where the opinion gets interesting or evil, depending on your perspective, and this directly relates to some of the abortion laws currently being passed by states around the country. In footnote number 54, it says, quote, When Texas urges that a fetus is entitled to 14th Amendment protection as a person, it faces a dilemma. Neither in Texas nor in any other states are all abortions prohibited. Despite broad proscription, an exception always exists. The exception contained in the Texas statute for an abortion procured or attempted by medical advice for the purpose of saving a life of the mother is typical. But, if the fetus is a person who is not to be deprived of life without due process of law, and if the mother's condition is the sole determinant, does not the Texas exception appear to be out of line with the amendment's command? Quote. What the court's trying to do here is essentially question the sincerity of the state's stance on abortion. After all, since Texas makes an exception to their abortion law, the life of the mother, they must not really, really, really believe that the baby in the womb is a person and subject to protection. In other words, if the law banned abortion completely, then we can talk, but this exception just opens the door for a so-called impartial arbiter to poke a hole in the law. This line of reasoning leaves pro-lifers no room to negotiate. If you acquiesce on the life of the mother or rape or incest, you get chastised by the courts for being inconsistent. Meanwhile, it's the pro-abortionists who refuse to acquiesce in the slightest, as I have mentioned several times already. oh. And just for good measure, the, d- the footnote continues with this brilliant piece of legal analysis. Quote Further, the penalty for criminal abortion specified is significantly less than the maximum penalty for murder prescribed by the Texas Penal Code. If a fetus is a person, why may the penalties be different? That, my friends, is the equivalent of a quarter-proved big FU middle finger. What a bunch of arrogant, condescending assholes. It makes my blood boil. But not only are the majority and concurring justices assholes for publishing this last couple of paragraphs, they also expose themselves to be mental midgets, unable to detect the irony of their position juxtaposed against their own words. Using their logic, we can question the court's sincerity about the right to abortion, because after all, they keep talking about how the right is not absolute and that there is a point where the state has compelling interest to regulate abortions. Like I asked in the last episode. Why allow states to regulate abortion if there's nothing wrong with it? Clearly there's something wrong with it, or the court would not agree that the state regulation is appropriate. So just as they question Texas's sincerity in prohibiting abortion, I question the court's sincerity in allowing it. At this point, the opinion begins to sway slightly in the pro-life direction. As I walk you through it, I want to ask you, have you ever heard anyone mention this part of the opinion, either pro-life or pro-abortion? The first chink in the abortion-for-all camp is this quote, "...as we have intimated above, it is reasonable and appropriate for a state to decide that at some point in time another interest, that of the health of the mother or that of a potential human life, becomes significantly involved. The woman's privacy is no longer sole, and any right of privacy she possesses must be measured accordingly," end quote. Sounds promising from a pro-life perspective, but Harry must have realized he was getting too soft as he continues. He explains that Texas defines life as at the moment of conception and therefore they have compelling interests in protecting that life. Harry however just can't bring himself to agree. He tries to explain his rationale this way, quote, we need not resolve the difficult question of when life begins. When those trained in the respective disciplines of medicine, philosophy, and theology are unable to arrive at any consensus, the judiciary at this point in the development of man's knowledge is not in a position to speculate as to the answer, end quote. Boy, oh boy, sure does seem to be a convenient time to show some restraint. What a joke. See how this judicial activism works? They stay in their judicial sandbox when they start down a row that is not conducive to their agenda. But on the other hand, they make up constitutional rights like the right of privacy and the right to kill babies in the womb right out of thin air. I think it's safe to say that the scientific advances over the last 50 years should be sufficient to even the most skeptical judge to come to some kind of agreement of when life begins, even if it is a compromise from the point of conception. As I mentioned earlier, we have ultrasounds, heartbeat, brain activity, DNA, ability to feel pain, movement inside the womb. I mean, come on, we perform in vitro surgery today. You're telling me that's not a human being worthy of protection? But pro-abortionists want us to ignore all of it no compromise. To bolster his argument of assigning a definition of life, Harry has this to say, quote, there has always been strong support for the view that life does not begin until live birth, end quote. Oh really? Says who? Well, Harry cites the Stoics, the Jewish faith, a large segment of the Protestant community insofar as it can be ascertained. Wow, that's powerful and sketchy legal prose there, Harry. Insofar as it can be ascertained, how, how hard is it to ascertain? I'm thinking the Jews and Protestants even back in 1973 would have had a problem with what you just said. Oh, oh, it gets, it gets better. He cites, quote, "...organized groups that have taken a formal position on abortion issue have generally regarded abortion as a matter for the conscience of the individual and her family." End quote. You mean all those pro-abortion groups, Harry? They don't agree that life begins at conception? What a surprise. He couldn't find any organized group that have formal position on the abortion issue that disagreed with the idea that it is a matter for the conscience of the individual and her family? That omission alone is proof that he has an agenda. In Harry's defense, he does for good measure throw in the fact that the official position of the Catholic Church is life begins at conception, and quote, this is a view strongly held by many non-Catholics as well, and by many physicians, end quote. He concludes this section with this. Quote, "In short, the unborn have never been recognized in the law as persons in the whole sense." The essence of this is Harry cannot find any precedent to latch onto that defines life as a baby in the womb close to the conception date. But on the other hand, the dude has no problem concocting a new constitutional right out of thin air. It's truly remarkable. We now move into section 10 of the opinion. This is a section that will blow your mind, and then it's never spoken of, and it actually contains language that permits states to ban abortions. So while the state has a compelling interest in protecting women who are having an abortion procedure, he does acquiesce by saying the following quote, it, the state, has still another important legitimate interest in protecting the potentiality of human life. These interests are separate and distinct. "...each grows in substantiality as the woman approaches term, and at the point during pregnancy each becomes compelling." Stop the presses. He said it again. The state has important and legitimate interest in protecting the baby in the womb? I take exception to his separate and distinct phrase because he's not referring to the fact that they are two separate and distinct people with separate and distinct DNA with separate and distinct human rights to life and liberty. He is saying that the protection of the woman is separate and distinct from the baby early in pregnancy, the first trimester, but then the separate and distinct protection moves over to the baby later in pregnancy. How did he arrive at the first trimester as a line of demarcation? It has nothing to do with the baby, as you're, not, you're probably not surprised, and it it's because the mortality rate of women undergoing an abortion procedure is so much lower during early pregnancy. They're even safer than regular childbirth. Unfortunately, by that same line of thinking, Partial birth abortion procedures are fully constitutional due to the medical advances in dismembering a baby's body and collapsing its skull by sucking out the brain. And the former future mother walks away a few hours after the procedure safe and sound. See how dangerous these meandering opinions become? Nonetheless, the opinion continues, quote, Examples of permissible state regulation in this area are requirements as to the qualifications of the person who is to perform the abortion, as to the licensure of that person, as to the facility in which the procedure is being performed. That is, whether it must be a hospital or maybe a clinic or some other place of of less than hospital status, as to the licensing of the facility and the like, end quote. Well, there you have it, folks. The state can do all that to restrict an abortion. It's right there in the sacrosanct Roe v. Wade opinion, but no one ever cites it. If you follow the news, the state of Missouri just this month refused to license the sole remaining abortion clinic in the state due to these exact same reasons, yet the left-wing pro-abortion maniacs continue their temper tantrums. If it's in the opinion, why does the left oppose any and all efforts to restrict or minimize abortions? Regulations on facilities, hospital admitting rights for physicians that perform the procedure, mandatory counseling, mandatory ultrasounds. Their opposition to these measures is in direct violation of their Bible, Roe v. Wade. Just a few sentences further down, Harry offers this up, quote, The state is interested in protecting fetal life after viability. It may go so far as to proscribe abortion during that period, except when it is necessary to preserve the life or the health of the mother, end quote. There it is again, folks. Do you know what the word proscribe means? It means ban, forbid, disallow. The state may ban abortions after the point of viability. So tell me why we still have late-term abortions in this country. Now here's where the illogic of this opinion comes in. The right to have an abortion early in the pregnancy is absolute. It applies across the board to all states. However, the states may go as far as to ban abortion later in the pregnancy. So it's a state's rights issue to protect the baby, but a constitutional absolute to kill it. How has this opinion survived for 50 years? This absolute view is articulated in this incredibly arrogant paragraph. Quote, This means, on the one hand, that for the period of pregnancy prior to this compelling point, the attending physician, in consultation with his patient, is free to determine without regulation by the state, in his medical judgment, the patient's pregnancy should be terminated. If that decision is reached, the judgment may be effectuated by an abortion free of interference by the state." Don't you just love the on-high proclamation from the court like God handed down the Ten Commandments? We are the High Court. Today we come to you with a new constitutional right. This right comes to you by way of the Due Process Clause of the Fourteenth Amendment. Or the ninth amendment or or the penundrums and emanations or the made-up right to privacy or the first Second fourth amendments. Does it really matter since whatever we say somehow magically becomes law of the land? From this day forward you have the constitutional right to kill your babies before they are born Enjoy your newfound freedom to choose to kill your offspring. Oh by the way This right to abortion applies to all 50 states. Oh, by the way, if states want to regulate or ban abortions after the first trimester, that's totally up to the individual states. It's ridiculous. Justice Rehnquist, in his dissenting opinion in Roe v. Wade, points out the absurdity of the overreach that the majority arrived at. The Texas statute is struck down in total, even though the court apparently concedes that at later periods of pregnancy, Texas might impose that same statutory limitations on abortion. My understanding of past practice is that a statute found to be invalid is applied to the particular plaintiff, but not unconstitutional as a whole. It's not simply struck down, but is instead declared unconstitutional and applied to the fact situation before the court. In other words, they overreached. And because the states did not call bullshit, some 50 million babies never got a chance to be born in America since. I have two more quick items that I want to address. Number one is, what, what would happen if Roe v. Wade was overturned, and what did the real Jane Roe think about the opinion years later? To answer the first question, I'm going to read one of my recent Facebook posts in response to the uproar over a host of states passing restrictive abortion legislation. I wrote, Attention to everyone who is shitting, spitting, and defaming Alabama over their abortion ban. Abortion is not in the Constitution. Therefore, per the Tenth Amendment of that very same Constitution, it lives in the states. Therefore, the federal government has no constitutional power to dictate how the state handles abortions within its borders. We have a republic, a federalist system, not a top-down, centralized, totalitarian regime. The 50 states can have 50 different standards for abortion, and everything will be copacetic constitutionally. Screaming for federal courts over this, or any other issue not specifically enumerated in the Constitution, is anti-American. Just chill. Allow the states to figure this shit out. If you don't like what your state legislature comes up with, you can move to a state that allows the killing of babies, or you can easily run to replace your low-life, pro-life state legislator. That's your right as American, or at least it would be in a fully operational constitutional republic. In other words, if Roe v. Wade were overturned, the abortion laws would revert back to the rightful place, the states. So what about the real Jane Roe? 30 years after the Roe v. Wade opinion, the real Jane Doe, the late Norma McCarvey, became a pro-life activist. In 2003, she filed a motion seeking to have Roe v. Wade overturned. She expressed regret for her part in the abortion mania that has taken over the left wing in this country since the so-called landmark opinion. I'll let Norma speak for herself. In a 2003 Chicago Tribune article, she said, It was my test case that legalized abortion. I've since repudiated my stance on abortion and think Roe v. Wade should be overturned. I've worked in four abortion clinics and I've seen firsthand what abortion does to a woman. Though I had never had an abortion, my child was carried to term and given up for adoption. Abortion was the sun around which my life orbited. Now I'm 100% devoted to Jesus and 100% pro- pro-life. No exceptions, no compromise. End quote. So as we close these two episodes on the Roe v. Wade opinion, what stands out to you? For me, it was the holistic reflection on its impact on millions of aborted babies. Over 50 million. That is such a sick realization. What could all of those people have accomplished in their lives? Some of whom who would be approaching 50 years of age now with families of their own. I was also struck by how little we really know about the landmark opinion. Sure, Blackman and His Married Band of concurring justices were activists at heart and got to the decision they desired, but what about the language allowing the states to restrict abortion later in the pregnancy? I just don't understand why states did not go out and pass laws that fell within those parameters and then challenge it later. At least they would be protecting some human life. Something else I realized during the research of these episodes is just how narrow-minded the left-wing in America really is. Being a liberal in America is the easiest possible avenue you can choose. There is no critical thinking required. Just feel your way to the policy preference and name-call anyone who disagrees. With a compliant media, you can live in your bubble for a lifetime and never really have your beliefs challenged. But beyond that admittedly provocative claim, think about how they approach major policy preferences, abortion being one. They beat conservatives and pro-lifers over the head with Roe v. Wade, claiming an unrestrained right to abort babies whenever, wherever they please. When the truth of the matter is, their Bible, Roe v. Wade, does not support their policy position. They do the same thing with unconstitutional executive orders. When Obama executed executive orders, they cheered. When Trump reversed some of them, they threatened lawsuits. These folks have no moral compass. There's no rules of engagement. They have no scruples. If you're going to live by a Supreme Court opinion, you should be willing to die by it when a court's makeup changes. If you're going to live by a unilateral executive order, you should be willing to die by it when the next guy comes into office. If Harry Reid wants to eliminate the filibuster from Supreme Court nominees, then the Republicans will use it when they are in power. The National Democrats are led by a bunch of crybaby mental midgets. Ultimately, the takeaway from Roe v. Wade along with dozens, maybe hundreds of others, is the Supreme Court's behavior over the centuries has demonstrated yet another breakdown in the constitutional framework set forth by our founding fathers. Please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast.